Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. That is the passage that we're going to be in today. Um, we introduced this text by going through the better part of Matthew chapter 4 quite some time ago because we took a week off to go camping in Sequoia, then we were off for five weeks in July, and uh, now we're coming back to Matthew 5 after having introduced it way back uh, towards the end of June, and I've been waiting for that amount of time to come before you with this message and the, the series that we're jumping off here in the Sermon on the Mount for that long of a period of time, and for a preacher, that's kind of like being asked to hold your breath underwater for you know half an hour, and that's just painful. So I am so grateful to be able to open up the Word of God with you this morning to Matthew chapter 5 and jump off into this text, which really is, in many ways, the greatest highlight of Christ's teaching ministry, the Sermon on the Mount. And it is an absolutely profound text that is going to take us some time to go through, and I am very eager to jump into it. I was looking this morning... And it looks like uh, Pastor John preached this text exactly 40 years ago this year for the first time. Uh, And then he came back, circled around, and did it again exactly 20 years ago this time. So it was 1978, then 1998. And I think as a church, we have not yet gone back through this passage in at least 20 years. If you were here for Pastor John's uh, last series, raise your hand. Has anybody heard the Sermon on the Mount here at Grace Church before? Okay. Anybody who was here for the very first time that he went through it? Anybody who's willing to admit that they were here for the first time? (laughs) Irv Busnitz and Karen, very good. Well, it's been a while, and that's part of the reason why I'm so eager to jump back into this. It's the life of Christ, it's the greatest portion of his teaching, and it's so, such a profound section of scripture. Um, I, I, as I was going through Pastor John's book, uh, his uh, commentary, on the Sermon on the Mount, I noticed that he quoted so often from a guy named Thomas Watson. Uh, And every other page, it seems like there was this Thomas Watson quote sprinkled in there. I thought, well, if John's going to quote from him this much, then I should probably go back and read the whole book myself, because apparently it was pretty good. It it reached the bar of MacArthur quotations. So over the month of July, while we had the time off, I went back and read um, Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan, his exposition of Matthew 5, 1 through 10. It's about a 350-page book on these 10 verses, and at first I thought, how in the world do you write 350 pages on 10 verses? And then I remembered that he's a Puritan. Um, (laughs) But as far as the Puritans go, he's one of the more accessible Puritans, very readable, able to be understood without having to stop every other sentence and think, now what did he just say? Um, It's really, really, really a a profound book. It was one of those books that in my own Goodreads account, it's one of only a couple this year that that got five stars, right? Uh, It's really one of the best books that I've read, not only this year, but really I think one of the best books I've ever read. Just a profound book um, that really exposits deeply the Beatitudes. And I, I was so encouraged by reading it. And if you get the chance to read it, I promise you that he will treat this far more thoroughly than I'm going to have the time to do. Uh, but really, really a good book. If you hadn't read that, go ahead and do it. But I found myself asking the question as I opened up my Bible for the first time to this text, why are the Beatitudes so famous? Why does everyone know the Beatitudes? Why, why are they so well known? And I frankly... Before having done this study, and since I wasn't here or even alive 40 years ago when Pastor John did his series, um, I, I never really fully understood them. I mean, 
what does it mean that you're blessed if you mourn, right? How, how does that work exactly? How can you be happy when you're being commanded to be sorrowful? And why is it that the poor inherit the kingdom? Am I supposed to go take a vow of poverty? I just don't understand these things. And, and the Beatitudes can indeed be hard to square with life if you don't take the time to unravel them. Are they just a bunch of random statements or are they driving somewhere and trying to make a point? But once you've really unraveled these statements, they ha- they, you find that they are very important that they are very significant in the life of the believer because they establish Jesus' expectations for his followers. Really, the Beatitudes and the whole Sermon on the Mount, but this section specifically, uh, it really is like the constitution for the Christian life. It's really the section of Scripture that outlines here is what is expected of the follower of Jesus Christ. Out of the mouth of Jesus himself, this is what he expects the life of his follower to look like. Now, these are not like the spiritual gifts. You don't get one of these that's given to you by the Spirit of God and then just kind of move along, right? It's not, it's not like that. It's not as though you're going to have one but not the others. Really, these statements all build upon each other and they all must be present in some fashion in the life of the believer. All of them are the results of God's working in you and they will then be evidences that you belong to Him. I want to make it very clear from the get-go that these statements in the Beatitudes are not entrance requirements that you have to perform in order to be in the kingdom of God. Rather, these statements are the results of what your life will look like if you are already in the kingdom of God, and that is very important for us to grasp as we jump off into this section of Scripture. Their order as you go through them is very important. Every one of them leads logically into the next. And Jesus has structured these statements very carefully for us. And I want to just give you a brief overview of that structure because that's the structure we're going to be working through the next several times that we have the privilege of being together. And there's really a perfect symmetry that goes along with this. There's nine Beatitudes, and they essentially break down into three distinct sections of three Beatitudes apiece, okay? And the first one that we're going to be looking at today is really Beatitudes 1 through 3, and that gives us the right perspective on your relationship to God. Beatitudes 4 through 6, which we'll look at on a different week, really give us the right perspective as it relates to your heart. And then Beatitudes 7 through 9 will give us the right perspective on the world that is around you. It's amazing how Christ structured these and the impact that they have as you go from point to point to point. Now, as I did my study, I found out that these things seem pretty simple, but they're really not. There are actually 36 different interpretations of the Beatitudes that one person counted up and said there's 36 different ways to read these. So a lot of people have read these, obviously, and a lot of people have said this is what they mean. But not a lot of people are right, because there's only really one way to read it, and that's the way that we read it naturally when we open our Bibles. But contained in these statements is truth that's so profound that even secular philosophers recognize the power of it. This is said to have been the the, uh, Mahatma Gandhi's favorite section of scripture. I really wish he would have fully understood it because it really would have changed his life. But even secular people look at this text and they say, that's powerful teaching. Even people who don't know Christ. 
but it's really not confusing. It really is very straightforward if you know the Lord and understand his truth. This sermon is meant to be the foundation for life in God's family. And every statement that Jesus makes here, it's like a massive block that's laid down and fits perfectly into God's plan for your life. A life that will, if you are living according to his truth, bring you great fulfillment, great blessing, despite the reality of the circumstances in which you find yourself. That's why it's so very important for us to understand. And to really get the Beatitudes, we have to start by asking ourselves the question, the obvious question, what does it mean to be blessed? Because nine times Jesus says, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. What does that sense of blessing mean? Because he's inserting that into every single one of these statements. And so before we can go anywhere, we have to just by way of introduction, get a sense of what is this blessing that he's talking about? And it's kind of interesting in this text, because when he, said bless, when he says blessed are, it's not the usual word in the Greek language that is normally present to describe this idea of blessing. The normal word that is usually used for blessing means some kind of spiritual benefit. But the word that Jesus chooses here is really a different word that means to be fortunate. It means to be happy, right? And it's interesting because you're saying, is, it, is the sense of being blessed, is that just simply saying that you're going to be happy if this is the case? It really is more than that. And, and the context would tell us that neither the idea of having just a simple spiritual benefit, kind of a spiritual existential benefit, a, a goodness, a blessing, that's not sufficient as far as a definition goes. Neither is it sufficient to say that, the, that you will just simply be happy. Your emotions will be happy if you do these things. Neither one of those statements really effectively captures the idea of what Jesus is getting across here. What he's really saying is that this is a settled satisfaction in your soul. It is both spiritual and really emotional at the same time. In a, in a world of longing, he says, if these things are true of you, you will have gained a satisfaction that cannot be lost. You will have gained a contentedness that is totally unaffected by your external circumstances. This blessedness that he's referring to here, it's talking about the satisfaction and therefore the resulting happiness that comes from finding your ultimate satisfaction in the only person who can satisfy you. And here in these verses, Jesus gives us that pathway to discovering that lasting satisfaction. And as we get rolling into this, we start down in verse 1 of chapter 5, where we're told the following. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying. Now we know, because we looked at it seven weeks ago, that Jesus has already called his disciples, and the crowds are beginning to hear about him, and they're beginning to come follow him, and they want to hear what all the fuss is about. So Jesus, we're told here, calls his disciples, and he sees the very large crowd around him, and he realizes and knows that it's time to explain the nature of life in God's economy. How does life in the kingdom of God work? 
And the picture that's given to us here in verses 1 and 2 is Jesus up on a hillside. And if you've been to Israel, you can picture it in your mind. There's these, these hillsides that rush straight down into the Sea of Galilee, right? They're, they're hot. They're sun-baked. They're, they're covered in grass. And in the springtime, they're covered in flowers with the royal blue sky and the water that's down below a very picturesque sort of a setting. There's very few places in the world that are more beautiful than than Galilee in the spring. And these great crowds have gathered around him, and we're told that there on that mountaintop, Jesus sits down without view before him, and he gathers his disciples immediately around him with the great crowd of people stretching beyond the immediate circle of his disciple. And then we're told in verse 2 that, and I love this, he opens his mouth and begins to teach. And that statement seems so innocuous on the front end, right? He just opened his mouth and started to talk. And then what comes out is this powerful, power-packed punching, all these statements. It's amazing. I mean, imagine being there in that setting and hearing the words of God's expectations for you coming out of the mouth of God himself. They're pouring out of him and bringing clarity, bringing salvation, bringing finally an understanding, bing, of what God expects from us. And he starts at the very beginning. He starts in verse 3 with the first beatitude that tells us exactly what it means to have a relationship with God. And that is really, as I already said, the point of Beatitudes 1 two, and three, and that is the point of our time together this morning. In order to have a relationship with God, Jesus tells us first and foremost, you must grasp and understand and recognize your bankruptcy before God. In order to understand, in order to have a relationship with him, you must see and grasp your bankruptcy before him. And then in these first three Beatitudes, he gives us three critical steps that will help unveil our bankruptcy. First, in verse 3, this is the first Beatitude here, he tells us, you must realize your poverty. Realize your poverty. And this is where it all begins. He's not calling for us here in verse 3. Well, let me read it for us. I haven't done that yet. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First words out of his mouth, right out the chute. He's not calling us here to take a vow of poverty, and this has often been misunderstood throughout human history. There, there once was a Roman emperor named Julian the Apostate, right? Based on that title, you can pretty much tell where he stands <laughs> as, oppo- as opposed to the kingdom of God. And he was a very wicked soul, very wicked indeed. And he persecuted believers, he killed them, he, in all sorts of horrible ways, history makes no mistake about exactly what he did, but we're told that he was said to have read this verse at some point, and having then begun to intentionally confiscate all the Christians' property in his kingdom, so that he could make them destitute, and his statement, ironically, was the following, I'm simply doing what they need to have done for, in order for them to inherit the kingdom of God. Make them destitute, make them poor. Therefore, am I really not doing what they want me to do all along as he gathers all of their property into himself? That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying you must be poor to be in the kingdom of God. He's saying you must be poor in spirit. And that's a very important distinction. 
You say, well, what's he saying? What he's saying is very simple. He's saying this. This is a call for you to see yourself the way that God sees you. It's an awareness of your spiritual poverty. He's talking here about their need to have an awareness of their absolute lack of resource as it relates to being able to stand before God. He's, he's essentially telling us to recognize our neediness. Because when we come before God, we stand there empty-handed as a pauper before the king of the universe who owns literally everything. And when you stand before him, you are nothing more than a bankrupt beggar. And Jesus says, if you would inherit the kingdom of God, you must start by recognizing this. You must see yourself the way that God sees you. You see, this was important to the people Jesus was talking to because they were coming to him with their treasure chests all filled up with their good works, essentially trying to convince God, look, look at me. Aren't you impressed? It's almost like a child who is proud of their artwork and they bring up to you their paper and there's paint dripping, there's glue smearing, and they say, look at what I've done. I'm going to start a museum now to my own greatness. And you say, it might be worthy of the fridge, but it's not worthy of the Getty. They're not going to let you in the door. (laughs) Nice effort, good try, but it's not good enough to put up as being some kind of model of your greatness. Your best efforts are as nothing. And this was revolutionary to the people that Jesus is now speaking to. The very first statement out of his mouth is something that just blew their minds away. Could not believe it. You see, they were filled up with their account. They were seeking to fill up their account with adherence to God's laws and commands. And Thomas Watson, I'm going to quote him because John MacArthur did, and therefore it must be okay, says this. He who is swollen with an opinion of self-excellency and self-sufficiency is not fit for Christ because he is already full of himself already. If your hand is full of pebbles, it cannot also at the same time receive gold. Powerful statements. And Jesus is saying here, you must understand your bankruptcy. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 18 because there's a perfect illustration of the difference between one person who is poor in spirit and another who is proud in spirit. Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some people who were trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt, people who were proud in spirit. Jesus says two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this, I love this, to himself. God. Whoa. That's how he perceives himself. He is his very own God. I thank you that I am not like these other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here, disgusting little puny person. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. He's very satisfied in himself and his abilities. His treasure chest is all filled up with himself. And he has become for himself his own God and his own self-justifying deity. But then look at this. It's beautiful the way that Jesus juxtaposes that kind of self-righteous, pompous arrogance with this tax collector. The tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven and was beating his breast saying, God, Be merciful to me, the sinner. Not a sinner, the sinner. The only one that matters right now when it stands before me and God. He's the only one that matters in his own mind. 
that I recognize that there is no greater sinner than me. And Jesus says, I tell you, this is powerful. This man, the disgusting puny sinner, went to his house justified rather than the other, the self-righteous, self-exalted, pompous man. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who also humbles himself will be exalted. It's a perfect illustration given to us by Jesus himself in a different section of Scripture that highlights and underscores the need to be poor in spirit because there is no way into the kingdom of God if you do not understand your poverty before God. So we have to ask ourselves, what, is it, what does it mean to be poor in spirit then? We've seen how important it is. What kind of poverty is he talking about? Now, there are really two words for poverty that could be used in the Greek language, and I'll give them to you just for your own edification's sake. The first one is penixros, all right? And that means to be poor, but to still have some level of meager resource available to you. It, it's used in Luke chapter 21 of the woman, the widow, with the two small coins, right? Where she has two small copper coins, and this word penixros is used of her. She is definitely poor, but she still has something left to her name. She could go buy bread if she wanted to, even though she doesn't have much to buy it with. That's one word for poverty. There's a second word for poverty that's also used. It's ptoxas, right? And that word means to be utterly and absolutely destitute with no property or anything of value to your name. And it's a word that really means to cower or to cringe. And in the meaning of that word, you have the image of what it's trying to describe. It, it pictures a person who is so destitute that they are forced to ask for charity, and at the same time they shrink back in shame, oftentimes covering their face because they're so ashamed of how destitute they are. And they're expecting either a blow or some sort of charity, and they don't know which one's coming, so they, they cower and they cringe as they come before the one whom they are begging. It's the word that's used in Luke 16 to describe Lazarus, the destitute man, as he goes before the rich man asking for scraps off his table. There's a total, utter emptiness. Which one of those words do you think is being used here in verse 3? If you guess the second, toxos, the one that says you have absolutely nothing, you'd be right. Because when it comes to mercy and grace, all you can do is beg. When it comes to these commodities, your bank balance reads not dangerously low, it reads absolutely empty, zero. And the implication is that then when you come before the king who, stand, who owns all, you're going to stand there and recognize exactly what he has and what you don't have, and your desire will be for the riches that he alone can give. Do you have an awareness of your lack? Do you have an awareness of his abundance? And do you have a desire for what he has? You see, you must be aware of your own poverty before you can even begin to formulate a desire for his riches. It's frightening that men could stand before infinite God and never, ever recognize their need. Men who don't see their own poverty of spirit are like the emperor who has no clothes. 
And until you recognize that you have nothing, you cannot hope to be clothed in the garments of the king's righteousness. You cannot see the worth of Christ until you first understand your own want of him. How do you know a person who is poor in spirit? Well, the proud in spirit will tell you exactly what he has, but the poor in spirit will tell you exactly what he lacks. A person who is poor in spirit, he will do anything to get Christ. The world may call him shameful. They may call him foolish. They may call him unhinged. They may call him wasteful, but it will not matter to him because he who knows his need will do anything to have that need met. So when it comes to your relationship with God, I ask you this morning, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as an abject pauper who is empty apart from Christ with nothing to give and no right to take or have? Or do you see yourself and your own efforts as having some measure of great value to him and therefore to yourself? Are you the Pharisee who thinks he is something when he is nothing? Or are you the tax collector who realizes that he is nothing and in the process gains everything? Instead of clinging to your own riches, you must give up everything. Abandon your delusions of your own ability and cast yourself upon the kindness of the Lord as a broken sinner, unworthy of any kindness whatsoever from his hand. And when you're willing to do that, look at the result here in verse 3. Jesus says, those who are willing to recognize their poverty of spirit will end up inheriting the kingdom of heaven. Here is the great blessing. When you stand before the king and are willing to acknowledge that you have nothing, only then is he willing to give you everything. You must be poor in order to be rich. You must acknowledge that you have nothing before you can get anything. And it's amazing here because you don't just get something, you get everything. You see, external things, items, tokens, status symbols, they cannot satisfy your internal needs because they are of a fundamentally different nature. But instead, when you look to the one who can satisfy your internal needs, you've been filled up to overflowing. And Jesus says, you will therefore be blessed. You will be content. And nothing, no matter your circumstances, will be able to snatch that contentment away. You will be truly satisfied. And so the question before us this morning is, are you willing to trade what Solomon calls that, those things that are vanity of vanities for what Paul refers to as the peace that passes all understanding? You cannot find the blessing of God until your life has been radically reoriented according to the mind of God. Do you see yourself the way he sees you? And when you do, you'll find life through your relationship to him. You become a co-heir of life with Christ in God, a son of the father, adoption as his child, granted citizenship into the kingdom with full rights and privileges of what that means. Give up the delusion that you're something and receive his kingdom instead. And that, that is the beginning of spiritual life. Now, Everyone in this room would claim to have some level of relationship with the Lord. It's why we're here on a Sunday worshiping instead of at the beach, worshiping ourselves. But still, we are people who like to puff and to preen and to seek to always show our good side, not only to one another, but to God. And yet the very foundation of our spiritual life, and we cannot miss this, the very foundation of our spiritual life is built upon a different heart that recognizes we are nothing. 
And everything then about our relationship to God flows out of that understanding. You say, well, I do recognize my poverty. Sometimes I forget how bankrupt I actually am apart from Christ. But what now? What's next? What's the normal reaction to recognizing bankruptcy? It's where Jesus goes next in verse 4. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The second step in establishing this relationship with God the right way is to have a reaction of sorrow to your bankruptcy. Now, this is kind of a normal response, right? We can go all the way back in history to the 1920s, called a time called the Roaring Twenties, because they were absolutely affluent. The stock market's going crazy. The nation is expanding. People are blowing through cash. And all of it comes to a screeching halt on Black Tuesday in 1929. The stock market crashes, and, and, and we see what's now called the Great Depression having been kicked off. In retrospect, we see how horrible it was for the economy of the people. A seismic shift that happened in the nation. Millions of people were ruined, put out of work, living on the street. And some of them could not stand the newfound realization that they had been reduced from rags to riches. One of them, history tells us, a young man named Little, shot and killed himself and he left behind a note along with four cents. It's all he had. And he directed in his note that my body should go to science, my soul to the secretary of treasury, and sympathy to my creditors. Right? You say, wow, that's pretty desperate. What happened to that man? Why was he in such a state of absolute despair? Because he could not cope with the recognition that he was a man who was now bankrupt with nothing to his name. And the gnawing realization of that reality so crushed him and made him profoundly empty. His sorrow was so great, he was driven to the point of taking his own life. You see, sorrow, mourning, it is the natural response to the understanding that you are nothing. And this is really the hardest of the Beatitudes for us to understand here. What do you mean I'm blessed if I mourn? How can I, how can I be happy if I'm commanded to be sorrowful? Because when you recognize your bankruptcy, there's a whole lot of different ways that you can respond. The hypocrite responds to his own bankruptcy by trying to kick things into high gear. He says, bootstrap this thing up, I can do better. If I'm bankrupt and I recognize that I'm bankrupt, I will make myself great once more. I will be rich upon the back of my own merits. That's the hypocrite. The atheist looks at his own bankruptcy and he says, that's clearly not true. And he ignores the reality of his standing before God. And he says, I'm going to replace that God with myself and move the standard. The moralist pretends to be rich. He says, what are you talking about bankruptcy? I'm actually very rich. Look at all the baubles that I've collected around myself that, that demonstrate my value and my wealth. The agnostic person says, you know what? I'm bankrupt. I know it. I don't care. And they just give up and die. But that's not the response that's given to us here in this text. The response to our bankruptcy in this text, the next step in developing this relationship with God the Father is that we begin to mourn our poverty and then turn to the only one who can possibly absolve the debt that we have accumulated. How much does your sin and your moral bankruptcy apart from Christ bother you? When you see evidence of sinfulness clinging and cloying to your life, does that bother you and cause you to be sorrowful for your offense against a holy God? 
Do you mourn the condition of your soul? Because that's the natural response to bankruptcy, according to Christ. Now, what does this sorrow look like? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 gives it to us. We won't turn there for the sake of time, but it talks about two different types of sorrow. There's a worldly sorrow that leads directly to the pit of hell. And it's a sorrow that says, I'm so sorry that I've lost something. And I'm sorry that I have consequences. And I'm sorry that I've been caught. That's the worldly sorrow that leads to damnation, the text tells us in 2 Corinthians 7. And contrasted with that, there's a godly sorrow that mourns the offense caused against a holy God and the breach of relationship with him. And this kind of sorrow brings life. It's the kind of sorrow that is seen so clearly in Psalm 51. And we can't turn there right now, again, because we don't have the time to go through that whole psalm, but I'd encourage you to read it because it's a perfect picture of what this kind of sorrow and mourning over sin should be in the life of a believer. So you go through this text... And as we are, as Christ's followers, commanded to mourn, there are, there are really nine different words in the Greek language that are used for mourning. And the word that Christ chooses here intentionally and the one he selects, it's the strongest possible word that can be used. You see, it's a sorrow that goes beyond the heaviness of heart. It, it cannot be contained internally. It, it spills over and is visibly on the out, visible on the outside. It's usually used in Scripture when, only when talking about the death of a loved one. It's, it's the same word that's used of Jacob when he thought that Joseph had been slaughtered by wild animals. He, he mourned visibly. It's the same word that is used of the disciples before Jesus was raised. They mourned and they were shattered. They were crushed and they were desolate. They mourned over these things. And here Jesus says, when you recognize your bankruptcy of of value before the Lord, you ought to earn that reality. You must be sorrowful when you see your sin. Your recognition of who you are apart from Christ should impact you. Why? Because sin in your life, it, it ignores the truth about God. It makes you the enemy of God. It, it demonstrates the highest level of ingratitude possible towards God, and it, it separates you from the goodness of God. Again, Thomas Watson says, Sin is a complication of all evils. It is the spirit of mischief distilled. Sin dishonors God, denies God's omniscience, derides his patience, distrusts his faithfulness. Sin tramples upon God's law, slights his love, grieves his spirit. Sin wrongs us. Sin shames us. It is a reproach to any people. This is why we mourn when we see sin active in our life. Now, it's important to note here that this is not to say that we're to be those who sit around in self-pitying despair. That's, that's not the kind of sorrow that Jesus is talking about here. Such a crushing realization of our condition should then motivate us to immediately pivot away from ourselves and turn to the only one who can fix ourselves. You see, true mourning, it, it doesn't focus on yourself. The desolation of it for, fo forces you to focus upon God alone who can forgive and remove your sin. And that's what makes such godly sorrow ultimately godly. It focuses on him, not on you. Think back to Romans chapter 7, where Paul is in the midst of turmoil within his soul, right? He says, wretched man that I am, I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I do want to do. Who will save me from this body of death? What's the very next phrase that follows? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who has given us the victory. 
That's what godly sorrow does. It sees its sin, recognizes the bankruptcy of it, mourns the severity of what it has caused, and then it turns to Christ to find its absolution. And this is the blessing that Jesus gives here. I'm not making this stuff up. Jesus says it. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Here it is. For they shall be what? What's the text say? Comforted. Right? When you mourn in a godly way over the sin that you see in your life, you will find comfort that otherwise would be lacking. Once you've rec- realized the awfulness of your condition, you can find happiness and be consoled. This is not an accident. It's a certainty. John, 14, John chapter 14 tells us that the Holy Spirit's primary, primary ministry is one of comfort. In fact, in that text, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit's name for the believer is Comforter. That's his primary ministry to us now. And not only now, because we still have our afflictions with us, he will do this forever. And you see the the outcome of that in Revelation chapter 21 and the ultimate fulfillment. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because all those things have passed away. You see, those who recognize their spiritual poverty before God find life in Him. And all those who mourn their sinful bankruptcy find that He is then there, ready to comfort them. These are therefore the first two steps to grasping our bankruptcy. Recognize your poverty and respond with a godly sorrow that looks to Christ. And if you live in dependence upon him for your life and have learned to hate your sin, thereby finding his comfort, how then should you now live? Well, Beatitude number three in verse five says, goes on. It says, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. You see, the first two points combine into this one. If you see your poverty and if you mourn that poverty, thereby finding God's comfort, then there's only one possible response. You will then live a life of humility, meekness, gentleness, because you'll be standing with full awareness of your dependence upon him for your salvation. And that's the lens now through which you approach everything in life. And you will be marked as a person who is meek, a person who is humble, a person who is gentle. You see, everybody listening to Jesus on that day, they had been preconditioned to act spiritually proud and to be self-sufficient, to present themselves as having it all together, not only before one another, but before God. And they were covering their sinfulness with satisfactory, quote-unquote, behavior that that caused God to look at them and to be, quote-unquote, fooled by their veneer of outward acceptability. And Jesus' message here in this verse is that God sees you, not the good you, the real you. So stop with the charade already and live a life of humble dependence upon his work on your behalf. A person who's experienced grace will be meek because that essentially means you're depending upon the work of someone else to provide for you. You cannot take the kingdom of God by force. You cannot take the kingdom of God through your own aggressive righteousness. The only way you can find and inherit the kingdom of God, verse 5, is to step back in full humility and dependence upon the Lord. And that's what he's telling us here. That you, there's a requirement of humility in the life of the believer. 
Stop your forceful pursuit of taking over the kingdom on your own merits and your own strength. Instead, live quietly, peaceably, gently, in dependence upon the Lord's ability to deliver that kingdom to you. 1 Peter 5 says it this way, Clothe yourself with humility, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. You see, poverty focuses on your bankruptcy. This idea of meekness or humility, it focuses not on your poverty, but on the ability of God. And the result is that it produces gentleness in you. You See, if you look at your life and your life is not marked by meekness, humility, gentleness, this text seems to indicate that you do not have grace because the life that has been seasoned by grace will taste like gentle humility. And this is the direct fruit of a life that has become familiar with the grace of God. And if you now live with a spirit of humility, gentleness, and meekness, Christ promises us that not only will you be in the kingdom, but you shall also inherit the earth. And you can ask yourself the question, what does it mean to inherit the earth? I don't, I don't really understand that, and I never have. But upon studying it out, it's very interesting because what Jesus is saying here is almost a direct quotation directly out of Psalm chapter 37. And in that psalm, David says, those who trust in the strength of the Lord will be saved and they will inherit the earth. And in that text, inheriting the earth is essentially a way by which David is saying, you will receive the full fulfillment of all of God's covenantal promises to all of his people throughout all of human history. That's what it means to inherit the earth. You ask yourself the question, what was the beating heart of God's promises to his people in the Old Testament covenants? It was that they would find full salvation that they would find his full blessing upon them. So to the Old Testament believer then, what does it mean to inherit the earth? It means to find the full fulfillment of all of God's promises bestowed upon and given to you. That is what it means. Only once you recognize that you cannot take the kingdom of God by your own force or your own effort, Will God fulfill his promises to provide you with everything you need, not only for your life, but also for your godliness, your salvation, and your eternal security as well? That is what it means to walk humbly before him in full, meek dependence upon his work rather than your own. You see, in order to have a relationship with God, go back to where we started, you must recognize your bankruptcy before him. So this morning we ask ourselves in conclusion the question, do you see yourself correctly as you really are before the Lord? Do you regularly mourn your sin as an evidence of your bankruptcy and your need for Him? And do you live with a spirit of gentleness that depends upon and manifests the work of God in your life? If you would inherit His kingdom, if you would find His comfort, if you would possess all of his promises and inherit the earth, then these are the actions that will characterize you as one who has found a relationship with living God. Let's close in prayer this morning.
Our Father, we thank you for the teaching of your word that makes it so obvious who we are and who you are and how our relationship with you can be possible. Everything about our life in Christ is founded and rooted in that which you have done for us. So may we now be people who see ourselves as you see us, people who mourn our sin as that relationship with you is disrupted, and and people who genuinely seek to walk in great humility, fully dependent upon your work rather than our own. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.